0: Welcome, everybody. This is Richard Sachs, your host on Lost Arts Radio. We're broadcasting worldwide on this show for Sunday, the fifth day of February already, so it took about ten minutes to get through January. It's going to be a very fast year, I think, and there are a lot of interesting things happening, and some of them are related to um, areas around immigration and the whole issue of terrorism and things, and I thought it would be a good time if we could possibly get our friend Dr. Warner to come back and do another chapter on our series on Islam, and if you remember, and if not, you should go back and listen to the the archives, but we did an introduction, and then we did Muhammad's Life, we did a show on the history of Islam since then, also one on slavery, one on women, and one on Sharia, and Dr. Warner reminded me amazingly that we never really did one focused on the Quran, which is the main thing that people think of as the source material for learning about Islam. So, I thought that was a great idea. We should do that and maybe bring in some of the other um, related issues connected to the Sirah and the Hadith. Um, so, thank you for being willing to do that with us, Dr. Warner. It's really nice to have you back.
1: Good to be here. And it, we are doing this in the right way. Too many people get discouraged about learning Islam when they start with the Quran and they start with it they go, I can't make sense out of this. But since we've already been through Muhammad first, we'll be able to make sense out of the Quran.
0: Okay, great. So I won't feel like we blew it from doing
1: No, 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 no. no. We did it right. Okay, good,
0: good. Um, okay, first of all, a question that actually Doug reminded me of that I did not know the answer even though I've read almost all your books now. Which are incredible resources. Um, why is the Quran in English, which is basically, I guess, a transliteration of the Arabic? Why is it sometimes spelled with a Q and sometimes K?
1: Have no idea. It used to be spelled with a C, C O R A N. Okay. Uh, now the reason I don't use the Q U is that or Q R A N or ever how they spell it uh, is that it. I when you, you know they've got that little funny apostrophe in the middle of the word. Yeah. What does that mean? No I one know. knows. I don't know either. And so Quran, if, if I if I just landed on a spaceship and said the word Quran and you had to report it, you wouldn't spell it like Q-U-R-A-N. You'd probably spell it with a K or a C-O-R-A-N. Yes. Yeah. So part of what I've done in all of my books, Richard, is to try to make this easy for the guy who does heating and air conditioning installation so he can read it. Yeah. And so funny spelled words are... Now, I, I've tried to make them all as blue-collar, if you will, as possible, because I want everyone to understand Islam.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. And what what people sometimes don't realize is that even the people who think they're very, um, God, I don't know what word I was looking for, but sophisticated in understanding things and in using erudite. logic in complex ways and things like that, um, erudite, whatever it is, then they also, I mean, the best way for them to understand things is to be able to put it in simple terms. And and some of the, the really, you know, fancy teachers of various subjects who don't understand some of the basics are, are focused on sounding complex. And some of the others, Einstein and other ones that, you know, we've read from, were adept at making things simple because they really understood them. So, I, I appreciate that you're doing that.
1: Well, basically, I try to. I was a teacher for eight years, and by the way, when I learned that you could make money by standing up and talking about things you liked, I thought, "Is this legal? <laughs> right? Am I? Am I going to get arrested here?" So, Pretty but cool. anyway, I love as a teacher. The thing I loved most was getting the lights to turn on in the students' eyes, like, "Oh, that's it!" And uh, so, that's that's my whole goal is for people to understand it. Too yeah. much about Islam is written by people who are trying to impress you with how smart they are, not how easy the ideas are to understand.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think any subject, if you really understand, it comes down to basics. Um, Does so for me. I, I also, I had read um, your book on, on, I think you called it the abridged Quran before, and I just mm-hmm. reviewed reviewed the sections you told me to look at before talking to you this time, which I did, and that was good. Um Remind people what is Bukhari.
1: Ah, Bukhari. There are we're going to we're covering the Quran, so we can mention this. There are ninety one verses in the Quran which state that every Muslim is to imitate Muhammad in everything that he did. How he went to the bathroom, how he had sex, what kind of father he was, how he prayed, endless details. So they're to imitate Muhammad. Well, okay, let's say that we agree. All right, we we believe in the Quran, so now we're going to imitate Muhammad. Well. Where do we find Muhammad? Because he's not in the Quran, but he's written in the Sirah, S-I-R-A, his biography, and he's written in the Hadith. Now, the Bukhari is the largest, or the most uh, hmm, authoritative collector of Hadiths, and a Hadith is a little story about what Muhammad did and said. So, remember the old jokes Confucius say? Well, the Hadith are basically like Muhammad say.
0: Okay, okay, okay. So you would want to absolutely memorize every one of those so that you pattern your life after what he did, right?
1: Well, that might be a little difficult since there's about 7,000 of them. Okay. But we're aided in the fact that what you're trying to understand Bukhari is that there's an enormous amount of repetition. There are some hadith, these little stories, that are repeated a dozen times.
0: So what do you think the 7,000 comes down to when you eliminate repetition?
1: I've never counted it, but I would love to be a college professor where I could have graduate students working under me because one of <laughs> yeah. the paper we're doing that kind of scut work.
0: Yeah, you th- but it cuts it down significantly if you remove oh, yes. the repetitious stuff, right? Okay.
1: But then it cuts it down even more. See, we're Kafir, you and I, and so there are parts of the uh, Hadith which we care nothing about whatsoever at all. Let me give you an example: a detailed description of how to do the prayers. As a matter of fact, that's one of the largest thing in the largest subject categories in the Hadith. Well, I don't care how to pray about Islam because I'm not interested in praying. So when we take out all the religious material and then we take out all the uh, philosophic material, we wind up with a very manageable uh, collection of stories that, that are of interest to us, the outsider.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: And, and 31% of Hadith written by Bukhari is about the outsider the kafir the non-muslim
0: okay and that's the part that you've put most of
1: your work into explaining right well because don't mean to disappoint you here because it's about me
0: it's yeah, about- it, no i understand <laughs> you need a motive actually and 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 you said another thing besides as a teacher and professor liking to to be simple and to get things actually understood you also said something really outside the box, which is that you didn't mind people disagreeing
1: with you. You know, that used to be a custom in this country, Richard, that disagreement was perfectly fine. Disagreement is the fuel for the friction of debate, which means we can work things out. Right. But lately, we've getting more and more where well, let's just put it this way: we're not supposed to ever offend anybody.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I think the the correct word is triggered, right? <laughs> you know, you know. So well, you don't get you don't get triggered right away if somebody disagrees with something you're saying. That's pretty neat.
1: Well, I've at my bottom, I presume I'm. I always assume that our disagreement is an honest disagreement. Yeah. Uh, and so if if you honestly look, if you're going to be a teacher you will be faced with students raising their hand. And although they say there's no such thing as a stupid question, let me assure you, in eight years of lecturing, I can assure you there are stupid questions. <laughs> but by and large, by and large, they're like misunderstandings. And so let's talk about it. Yeah, Can we talk? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and we all have stupid questions about things that we don't really get and understand yet. But I, th- I think one of the main differences is, you in a normal teaching situation you kind of come from the assumption that we're all on the same side just trying to understand whatever is true exactly and, and the other <laughs> the the other approach is that we're
1: all there to fight with each other well really uh, different it's it's a very different set of circumstances and uh, i mean i try to approach all this material as logically and rationally as possible uh, the most valuable thing I learned becoming a scientist was the scientific method, right. which is, which, by the way, is, is beginning to fall out of f- favor in some circles. No matter where you stand on global warming, I give as an example, yeah. uh, it's no longer a rational discussion. If you don't agree, then you're malevolent in some way. You know, exactly. that's the other thing, is, is that disagreements now, presu- there seems to be a working presumption. Is that if you don't agree with my social ideas, the reason is not that you don't understand them, but you're evil. You're a bigot, you're yes. a hater, you're a racist. You're, there's yes. something morally wrong with you.
0: Yeah, and really the best thing would be that you should be killed, you know, and, and bring back peace and harmony. So <laughs> I, I, I'm seeing that trend all over the place now. My
1: wife was just watching something when you called, it was on YouTube in Portland. There was a riot at the airport about the, uh, Trump's uh, visa policies. Yes: And so there were some Trump supporters there, and these peace-loving hippies from Portland jumped him and knocked him out.
0: Now, right, as soon as right. he was
1: laying on the floor, the, little, the, the young ladies were say, "Peace, peace, peace." Yeah, and The idea yeah. is is that somebody thought, if you disagree with me on an idea, uh, we should uh, harm you if at all possible.
0: Exactly. Total elimination is always the best bet for complete <laughs> harmony. I, I, I've seen that all over the place, and I think it's being encouraged by the power structure through the media and other ways like that. Because if we can have social chaos, then we obviously need to be under tyranny. But that's another long discussion. But um, I think, you know, in line with the general principles we're talking about, and the fact that this is important to Kaffir's, I have to ask you, I'm not sure if I qualify as a really... Kafir in good standing because there are <laughs> two, two things based on what you've said so far. One is, and I just, I think, read this this morning as I was reviewing what you told me to look back on. Um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you said a Muslim is the person who believes that Muhammad is the prophet of Allah, and the Kafir says that he's not. Is that accurate?
1: Well, I would, the, the Kafir does not believe Muhammad is a prophet of Allah, nor does he believe in the sanctity of the Quran. We'll put both of those in.
0: Okay, well, that might change it. But I, if it was just about whether uh, Muhammad was the prophet of Allah, I can't see anything that really contradicts that he actually might have been. Because what he did, uh, you know, he was very responsible guy when he was a caravan manager and tried to do a good job. And it it seems to me that he probably tried to do a good job in proliferating what this uh, being that he was getting communications from was telling him to say. There, there is no evidence that I've seen that he was twisting it.
1: What do you? I I see where you're coming from. You're saying, you know. Whether Allah is true or not, Muhammad did every way, did every job he could, making sure that Allah succeeded.
0: I think he tried to be a really consistent, good prophet of Allah, being very accurate.
1: Well, gosh, I wish he'd have chosen a different god.
0: Yeah, well, that's another question entirely. Because <laughs> you, know, you can be a prophet of whoever you want. And, and uh, I think once he chose Allah, he seemed to have done a consistent job of it. I mean, really I don't want to totally
1: god.
0: divert us on that. Say that
1: again, I'm sorry. He did a brilliant job.
0: Yeah. The other thing that I have to totally respectfully disagree at this stage in my early learning of the subject is that um, you said that that everything that, that a Muslim does for prayer and the other things that they have to do to get into paradise and avoid hell, that's the religious part, and then the political part is the other stuff. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that the only reason he was able to get such devoted killers as soldiers for his cause was they believed that they couldn't lose. If they died, they went straight to paradise because it was part of the religion. So, I mean, maybe that's semantic, but it seems different to me.
1: Well… If we were all serious scholars sitting in the same room, we wouldn't use the term political Islam and religious Islam at all. We would just use the term Islam. That's what it my, looks like. Yeah, right. I mean, that's, once you start wearing big girl panties, that's the view. Islam is Islam is Islam. But the point is, is that for most people, they see Islam purely as a religion, and so by coining the term political Islam, I tried to set up an intellectual point of view, which established that, you know, they're doing things which are not religious at all. Uh, for instance, th- going back to the news today, some Muslims in the, I think it was the Dallas police port, just basically commandeered the check, baggage checkout and held group prayers to protest Trump's uh, edict on uh, visas. Right. Commandeering, praying is religious. The commandeering the baggage checkout at the Houston or Dallas airport, that's a political action. It has nothing to do with religion. So what I want us to do is to see that we have a political action as well as a religious motivation. Okay. And basically, so I'm it's, it's to set it's up a, a learning construct. It's, it's a teaching tool. Okay. It's a teaching tool. When, so it's, when I, if I was, I'm talking with Andy Boston, who's a who's a serious scholar on Islam, we yeah. just say Islam. And he's not confused because he knows Islam has a political nature.
0: And the only reason that teaching tool makes any sense is if you're going by your definition of what should be a religion. But Mm -hmm. when the religion itself says that is part of the religion, that's just, you know, another way to see it.
1: Right. I'm just trying to keep to me. Islam is like a coin. and It's got a head and a tail. That is, there's parts of Islam Richard, do you really care about the exact position of the hands when a Muslim prays, or could you care less?
0: I think there's other priorities that I'm trying to pay attention to before that one,
1: yeah. Right. But if a Muslim comes here and says, I have the right by the Quran to have four wives, should we allow that because we don't do it with anybody else? So the the four wives thing, although it appears to be just religious, gets over into politics. And all I want to do is just to talk about things that this is I want to talk about how it affects me and you, not just what goes on between Allah and those who worship him.
0: Right. So if a religion is private, and, and even in the case of the four wives, if they all want to be the wife of one guy and it's all mutual consent, I really don't think that it matters. But if you want to go out and do something to somebody without their consent,
1: that's a whole different thing.
0: Anyway, you know, maybe,
1: maybe, maybe we could divide it up into consensual Islam and non-consensual Islam. We may have discovered <laughs> a, new, a teaching tool there.
0: Yeah, I think that would be very interesting. But before we get too far afield, let's go back <laughs> and since everybody, you know, a lot of people think that the Quran is Islam and that they're not even aware of the existence of the other two scriptures, at least outside of Islam mostly. Um, let's go back and say, again, clearly what the Quran is, why the other two are necessary to understand it, which I think you've mentioned many times before. But then let's get into the Quran itself, um, rearranging it as you did in uh, in order of of time, temporal events. And then, you know, what are its messages? What does it talk about?
1: Well, we're going to discover that it talks about an awful lot. And let me say this. Most people think that the Quran is analogous to the Bible. That is simply not true. They're both theological texts. But the Quran, we need to keep this in mind, was revealed over a period of 23 years, whereas the Bible was came into being over a period of centuries and centuries by many different authors. And so they're very different books. I, I say this immediately because people want to believe... If at all possible, people always want to know new knowledge on the basis of what they already know, and if they can just add to it, it's easier. So most people think, well, the Quran, has got to be like the Bible. Well, it's not in many, many ways, and one of those is it just has one author. I'm going to call Muhammad the author of it, since it right. came across his lips, and it occurred in 23 years' time. Okay. So it's they're, they're very different books structurally.
0: Yeah, well, the Bible is a collection of Many different authors' works, right? Oh, and the many, Quran and, 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 the Quran's and widely from
1: disparate words. and widely disparate ideas.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. I, I'm I'm involved in a line by line study of the whole Bible from beginning to end right now. So I totally agree with you, and and it's not like good or bad necessarily. It's just totally different. You know, oh. that there are so many people involved in writing the Bible, and there's only one if they got it accurately. From whom the Quran comes. Mm-hmm. So, what did he write about?
1: Well, he wrote about basically. We've we been on this thing already about political Islam and uh, religious Islam. The two Quran. There are. If you read the, let's just let's start with the Quran and say that you walk into a bookstore and say, "I want to understand Islam," and I buy a Quran. You open it up. That you find that there's chapters in it, so that seems kind of like books in the Bible, maybe or whatever. But there's chapters in the Bible as well, and the first thing you read is seven verses in Surah One. Then you immediately you start into Chapter Surah Two, Chapter Two, called the Cow, and it's a big long chapter. Now you just finished seven verses for for one chapter, and yet the next chapter is like two hundred verses long. So immediately you notice that there's a And and furthermore, you also realize that the verse, the short seven verses, Surah 1 you've just read, don't have anything to do with what follows. And that's your first clue. The other thing is, is chapter 2 contains widely disparate things within it. It's kind of like, it's a chapter, but it has so many different things in it. And then it repeats the stories over and over again. So immediately, a reader is discouraged because they don't understand anything. Or they understand bits and pieces, but it doesn't seem to hang together as a coherent whole. Uh, If you read the Bible, starting off with, say, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you discover that those are a coherent flow of ideas. They build upon each other, and that there is a development there. Whereas in Islam, the development seems to be like a lurching from one thing to the other. Quite so let's say you then ago. turn to the back of your Quran you realize, oh, wait a minute, here's some little bitty chapters at the back. Henny, they're kind of sweet. They're kind of poetic.
0: When a few years ago, uh, quite a few years ago, when I first decided I needed to learn about Islam, I did exactly what you said and bought a Quran. And I really didn't come away understanding anything.
1: Exactly. So. <laughs> you had the typical Quranic experience.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, so anyway… Go ahead with what you were saying. Um, first of all, oh, one, one thing, though, that you mentioned, you said it started with a very short chapter and then got into a really long one right after that. I thought it was arranged
1: long to short. In general, that statement is true. You see, the first chapter, when you read it, see, all of this, when you read the Quran, there's a lot of impediments to understanding. One is, in the same sentence, you can hear the God word I and then the God word we. So Allah calls himself I, and Allah also refers to himself as we. Now immediately you go, wait a minute, who's talking here? We? So you meet your impediment right off the bat. The other thing is, is that you'll discover that Surah 1, the seven verses, is a prayer to Allah, as it were. So it can't really be considered a true chapter in the sense of, uh, so the Quran is confusing from verse 1 onward. And what my intellectual idea was, is I viewed this as a scientist as an unsolved problem. In the laboratory, you wind up with unexplained phenomena, and you collect all this data and information you can. Now, you know that in general, once you find out the solution, that all of this data will suddenly line up with each other like tumblers in a lock. But until you get to that point where you find the uniting idea, it's a mishmash. It's like you don't know where to go. So my whole thing about the Quran was to make it readable and understandable. And yet, we discover automatically uh, in the beginning that it's not very readable or understandable. And then if we dig into it, we discover this, that the chapters are arranged in the order not of time, but in terms of, in general, the longest down to the shortest. That is, if, if you're studying Sura, uh 98 and I don't know what surah 98 is, but I will bet you money it doesn't fill up a page doesn't take up a page of the document. So the mm-hmm. the uh, verse the chapters at the very end of the Quran are quite short and not only are they short, they have other characteristics as well. They're rather poetic and you can see there's a certain beauty there. Uh, in surah 2, the first the second surah you read in the normal Quran, uh, it's not very pretty at all. We're, we're laying in wait in ambush. We're having battles. We're killing people. So uh, the Quran has many different things in it, and they don't even seem to line up at all. But if you put them in the right order and right grouping, all of a sudden everything snaps into focus and attention. And that's was what I did. My my Qurans I call an, a reconstructed historical Quran. Because you see... If we give some thought, remember we were talking about Bukhari, the Hadith? Yeah, yeah. There was a Hadith by Ali, Muhammad's cousin, and one of his first convent, and his cousin, his uh, son in law, and one of his first converts. Ali says, I know the time and place and the revelation of every verse of the Quran. What did Ali just tell us? There was a time sequence, and these verses were all laid out. That is, the original Quran by Muhammad had a beginning, a middle, and an end. It had a time quality because Muhammad's life unfolded day by day. So if we have Muhammad's life, we have, on some days, he received these verses of revelation. On other days, he did not. So we, well, that's one of the things we need to restore to the Quran is the original time sequence. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because it, it had a time sequence. Ali told us that. It didn't all happen one night. It happened day after day over a period of 23
0: years. Right. And in the very, you mentioned, you know, one of those uh, verses you saw in the end was very, had uh, poetic beauty to it, are in general, does in the very beginning of the chronological sequence, is it uh, peaceful and harmonious and more what what people refer to from when they're talking about the religion of peace is is the early verses.
1: Yes, yes is that the early verses are poetic and actually contain some beautiful... Uh, I can't say it because it's been translated out of Arabic, but they appear to be beautiful ideas. There's oaths like, by the Morning Star. Well, I'm not sure what that means, but it has a poetic sound to it. It certainly mm-hmm. has a better poetic sound than lay in wait and ambush them when you can.
0: Right, yeah, different kind of poetry.
1: So but it's a different voice. It's different everything. Yeah. Richard, yeah. I could take... I could take a class of high school students and give them a one hour lecture on the Quran and then give them with a, a sheet of paper that had a, some clues on it. And they, you could come in, having not heard the lecture, and start putting Quran verses up on the wall. And the students would be able to look at their cheat sheets and say, Oh, that's, that, that's from the Meccan Quran. That's from the med, medieval, uh, not medieval, Medina Quran. That okay. is, I could take a group of high school students and they could learn how to pick. A verse from Mecca, the early one, from the verses from Medina later. They are that different.
0: Okay, so if you had to to say in a simple way what the Quran was, it's it's the messages from Allah, correct, that right, were translated right. through the angel that was then giving them to Muhammad. Right, and Muhammad, right. Muhammad was initially collecting them in his memory rather mm-hmm. than in written form and then later was you said they were written down in all kinds of parts of them in all different places were they written by muhammad or by people who were listening to muhammad and transcribing them
1: they were by people who were his scribes and secretaries and then those also who just memorized now you have to understand here that uh, muhammad was not creating anything new everything that's in the quran is derivative it was found somewhere else including the idea that it would be an oral tradition. Uh, There is a phrase within the Quran which is called people of the book. Now, today, I would never refer to anything of people of the book, and yet, what happened in Muhammad's day, that was a distinction. And the reason for that being a distinction was is that the first book written in the Arabic language was the Quran. That is, until the Quran, there wasn't a It was all oral tradition.
0: Okay.
1: Now, there was a written language that was Arabic, but it was not used for poetry or anything like that. It was used for business. It's interesting, but our first use of all languages that we can find in archaeological digs is always an inventory or a bill of sale, not poetry or a business. Yeah. Yeah. I find that sort of interesting. And by the way, the longest verse in the Quran in Surah 2 is a verse on business contract law. I found that to be interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Wasn't Muhammad a businessman?
0: Well, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I learned from reading your books, actually. <laughs> it was. And, and you're saying that they called the Jews and Christians people of the book because it was unusual to have people referring to books at that time. Right, right. We may be heading back for that
1: again. Well, with the I mean, way that some students are being taught in the universities, books would be useless to them anyway.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. So, um, all right. So when you said there was nothing that was really not from somewhere else, what does that mean?
1: Well, it is a derivative work. Richard, I have studied religion all of my life. I was raised in a very religious household. And by the time I was a teenager, I was reading from the pulpit and teaching adult Bible class. Okay. So I have read the, the Bible front to back many times. I'm not an expert on it, but I am very familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Then due to being influenced by some art from China, I became interested in other religions because as I looked at the art from China, I said to myself, uh, a brief personal sidebar, I was raised deep in the woods, okay? There was no art in my house. Mm -hmm. So I I, I was raised without art, basically. So when I ran into Chinese art, I asked myself the question, Not only why is the art different, but what is the thought behind this art? Yeah. And so I began to investigate and discovered that there were religions called Buddhism and Taoism. And Mm -hmm. so I became interested in them. So I have studied religious texts all of my life. And when I picked up the Quran, it was a derivative work in that when I heard about the bridge across hell, I said, oh, that's Zoroastrian. Right. Right.
0: And
1: this uh, this is from the Jews, and this is from the Christians, and this is from the pagans. So it's a patchwork quilt. It's not a new addition from Allah. It covers a lot of old ground and supposedly corrects the previously not understood ideas. For instance, Moses did not come before the Pharaoh in order to tell the people of, let my, tell the Pharaoh, let my people go. No, he came before the Pharaoh to insist that there was no God but Allah and that he, Moses, was his prophet. So we have the same story, the Jews in Egypt, but it has a different punchline. Okay. Okay. But it's obviously a derivative work.
0: I see what you mean, and uh, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, and I found so
1: that fascinating, and, and and nobody can easily go
0: back and check that. So it's just a matter of what you memorize from when you're born, I guess. Right. Good point. <laughs> so if you're born into a you know very good Muslim family who's following what you're supposed to in Islam. What do you start out learning as the youngest possible child where you can hear these things?
1: Well, I wasn't raised in a Muslim household, so I'm going to be speculative here and I'll be brief. The first yeah. thing it is, is when you're born, Allah, who Akbar, is whispered in your ear. before you've, After you've drawn your first breath, you start with that. Okay. Now,
0: now were- that, let's be clear about that phrase because um, I'm not even sure how it's spelled. Uh, What is it exactly, again, and what does it mean?
1: Allah, Allahu Akbar. Allah is greatest. Okay. Not great, but greatest.
0: Okay, okay, okay. So that's
1: what what you start with. That's when you're fresh out of the womb, that's what you start with. And then for a long period of time, you're allowed to do whatever in the house. There are some very uh, cute family photos of the people in the mosque. And they're all prayed, bent down. And here's a little kid standing there just looking around like a little, you know, four-year-old would do, grinning at everybody, not doing any of it. So that's your first introduction to it. Right. Now, of course, this all depends on what family you're raised in. I mean, there's some Muslim family. I met people in Kosovo who were Muslim who had never been in a mosque. So I can't. They were raised, obviously, in a very different way. But there reaches a point if you're going to be raised classically when you have to start coming to the mosque or you have to become a Muslim in more ways that are practical than just simply having a father who's Muslim. Okay. So, but you, in general, you're taught that Muhammad is the perfect man and that the Quran is a flawless book, it is perfect, and that Islam is due, is destined to take over and rule the world. So these are the things that you're, these are in the, your mother's milk, if you will.
0: Okay. Okay. And so when do you start studying the Quran? I would imagine that's pretty young. Or hearing some it. people,
1: some people. It's very young. Uh, one of the things is they take advantage of the fact when we're very young we can memorize well. If you, uh, I've met Tibetan scholars who could re- recite book after book of Buddhist scriptures. They memorize those as children. The Tibetan method of educating emphasizes memorizing up to around, around age twelve. Then it starts teaching you rational logic. I but see. Okay. Just fill it. And so there are people who've done that as children, Muslim children. That is, I've heard of kids who at twelve years old could repeat the entire Quran. Now he okay. wow. insert something here. The Quran they memorize is in classical Arabic, which most Muslims can't understand very well. And they there are people who speak Urdu who have memorized the Quran in classical Arabic who do not have an idea of what a single syllable means.
0: Hmm. Okay. Interesting.
1: Well, that we can all do this. We can also memorize things which are uh, things which sounds, and they make the mean the sounds don't have meaning, and yet we can memorize them. I mean, so it's not, but it's just well, so, extraordinary.
0: So they memorize it in a foreign language, and then they're explained what it means. I guess they're taught what it means later, later so
1: on. Learning okay. in the learning of it, you don't learn the meaning; you just learn to to memorize it. Okay. Okay.
0: Okay. All right. So, basically, the Quran is, is a really long book, right? I mean, just for, so that people Well, it's not
1: that long, like- really. Let me uh, here's, I'm looking up over my desk, and I'm seeing several Qurans, and they're big, thick books. But when you pull them down off the shelf, they're written in two languages, English and Arabic, and there's big footnotes at the bottom, as well as a large font size. That okay. is, the very binding of the book emphasizes how big it is, but... If you do, if you take out all the, if you just have the English version, Mm -hmm. I've got, uh, it's not on my desk here, but you can do a little six by nine book and it's not very big at all to have the text of the Quran. And if you remove the repetition, because that's the other thing when you read the Quran is at first it's confusing and then you realize, wait a minute, I've read this before. Oh, we're hearing about Moses again. The story of Moses is repeated some 38 times. Matter of fact, it's a highly repetitious book which has a clue as to the fact there's a clue in there. If you tell the same story over and over again, remember, Muhammad was an oral teacher, all right? Right. And people were memorizing. Let's say that you were part of Hillary Clinton's press entourage and you followed her around as she went from city to city. Do you think that she gives a completely new speech in in, uh, New York as opposed to Nashville? Of course not. It's the oh, same. She, she
0: changed her accent a little bit, but
1: that was. About well, it. there was that quality, which I, we won't comment on that. Okay. Uh, but the fact is, she gives pretty much the same campaign speech again and again and again. This is only practical. Well, I maintain that the repetition of these stories is an indicator of Muhammad's life as a religious politician. That is the reason we hear the same story again and again and again. Is this is a recording of his political campaign, and so therefore it would be repetitious. Do I make sense?
0: Yeah. So if I understand you, what you're saying is that what's in the Quran, which is the whole kind of the whole focus of this discussion, is that it's a a time sequenced series of almost like speeches or lessons that were being delivered by Muhammad along the way of his 23-year campaign.
1: Yes. Now, which if you put them in the don't. right time order, you get that.
0: Yeah, yeah, which it's, it's not out of the bookstore. It's not like that.
1: No. And that's one of the things, my Quran uh, one of the, I read, uh, we can all look back on our life and remember books that influenced us. And one of the books that influenced me was a book written by uh, an attorney who was in his 70s when he wrote the book. I forget his name now. And the book was called How to Argue and Win Every Time. Which sounds like sort of a cheesy title, but I picked it up for some reason. And inside, he said a lot of good information. By the way, the reason I picked up the book also, this man is an attorney over, he was in his 70s, never, ever lost a single jury trial case in his life. Boy, that's pretty unusual. So I wanted to know what he did. Okay, I'm like, wait a minute, you never lost. uh, And one of the things he said was, he said, I never, ever give a jury any facts. (laughs) That sounds like, oh, what are you, a sleazeball? He says, no. I tell them stories that incorporate the facts. He says, one person in 10 can remember a fact. Everyone can remember a story. Now, this tells us something very important, because you see the Quran you buy at the bookstore has no story in it because it has no time sequence. So if we put all the verses back in the right order, we restore the time sequence, and the Quran, instead of being a mishmash, comes out as an epic book, which starts off with a hymn. The first is about a hymn to God, and it ends with political domination of the entire world. It's an epic story. So that's what I did. And by the way, this is not some genius thing I had to do to put it in the right time sequence. There are many books written on the time sequence of the Quran because it has to be known because of this reason. The other thing that strikes you when you read the Quran on and on is, is how contradictory it is. And you're like, wait a minute, we just said the opposite a little earlier. Well, the Arabs of Muhammad's day thought the same thing. They said, Muhammad, you told us this a year ago, now you're telling us that later. And he says, there's a ver- there are, three I believe, three verses in the Quran which say Allah knows best. He can replace what is good with something that is better. Okay. So, therefore, the better is the latter verse. Well, wait a minute. If we have two contradictory verses and we need to understand which one is the better verse, we need to know which one comes later. Well, what that means is we have to know the time sequence of the chapters in the Quran. So, right. this information has been known for a millennia. So it's not like old Bill here is some kind of genius who is able to s- snuff the manuscripts, sniff them, and figure out the right time order. Nope, nope, nope. I went to the same scholarly text that anyone else can, and put the what, they, what the Muslim scholars do is they know which one comes later, but they don't move it. I said, wait a minute. I want people to understand this book, so I put them all in the right time sequence so that my Quran contains a story, a development of ideas.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah, that makes total sense. And uh, I really, um, one thing I think is characteristic of the best teachers is they work to make themselves unnecessary. Rather than saying, you know, that, that nobody can understand anything without them, they try to bring out the native intelligence and perception in the students so that they'll become more self-sufficient and know what to do. And what you're saying here is, here, I, I put a tool in front of you it's nothing amazing in itself, but in the fact that we did this simple rearrangement means suddenly it's accessible to everybody.
1: And it, and you can see ideas develop, because ideas develop not over in an instant, but they develop over time. So you can see the development of the ideas. You can see how it starts off. Some of the early uh, surahs, which are the short ones in the back of the book, are really quite poetic and beautiful. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. You get to you get to see the beauty and the poetry, and then by the time you get to the end, which is and by the way, uh, well, not without getting off into that. When you get to the end, it's like, oh my goodness gracious, this is where all the jihad is because you see in Mecca, there's no verses of violence.
0: Yeah, that's that's just. I mean, there's even a difference between the first Meccan verses and the last Meccan verses, yes. right? What what do you see in that progression?
1: I don't is that they become less poetic because by the time you get to the very end of the Meccan Quran, you're getting into the pop. Excuse me. You're getting into the politics of the Jews because you see when Muhammad, we haven't dealt with this yet. Richard, if I wake up in the morning and start telling people, hey, God is talking to me and here's what he says to me. And here's how you're supposed to change and run your life in order to get right with God. Mm -hmm. Well, people are going to look at me kind of funny. And move away if they could, but if they're forced to engage with him, they're going to go, this guy's crazy. Nobody, okay. knows. Right. So, Muhammad had the same problem. Here he is, a middle-aged businessman. God is telling him what to do. So, he says, let me prove to you that what I'm telling you is from God. He then turns, pivots to the Jews, and in Mecca, which was southern Arabia, they all knew of the Jews. They knew they were a literate people and skilled. In those days, they had the same reputation. Mm-hmm. And so they, he said, I'm, you know, the Jews have prophets. Well, the, and they, the reason they have prophets is, is there's an archangel who talks to the prophets. Well, that seems reasonable. And so uh, that archangel that talked to Moses and David and Solomon, the same archangel that's talking to me, see, I am the prophet of God because the same archangel is talking to me as was talking to Moses. Mm -hmm. Well, the argument seemed to work pretty well for the Arabs in Mecca because they knew of Jews. Yeah, they had a prophet. They had a book. And so if this was delivered by an archangel, then sure, why not Muhammad? But as Muhammad pressed his religion more and more upon the people in Mecca, they became more and more irritated at him. And so they sent uh, a writer. They sent three writers to Medina where there were Jews. And they said, look, this guy says he's a prophet like the Jews. Give us some tough questions to ask. And so they went back with tough questions. Well, the Meccan Quran, which up to this point had honored the Jews, now then begins to turn on them and call them perfidious. So we see at the end of the Meccan version of the, or of the, the Meccan version of the Quran, the early Quran, that towards its end it begins to get over into politics and Jew hatred. Mm-hmm. The be- very beginning part is quite poetic. And, of course, you do have that business of the tedium of Moses and over and over. And then you get to re-read. By the way, <clears throat> I was raised in a time and place way back in the boondocks. And one of the things we did before television was we sat around. This is going to shock the listeners. And we told stories and listened to stories. So I'm very keen on stories. And we see that Muhammad's story begins to change as, as his life goes on and uh, anyway what's our next question
0: all right well so are, if i understand it right you're saying that the reason that he started saying bad things about the jews was maybe in retaliation or, or to take away the uh, focus on the tough questions that yeah. And, and did yes. he answer did he answer them
1: he finally answered them uh, by the way the three questions they asked him to they said ask your prophet these three things I also had to say that the rabbis of the Jews in Medina were not very high caliber rabbis. They asked kind of like goofy questions as far as I was concerned. I was a little disappointed. But the fact is, is as we read the Meccan Quran, it starts off with poetry and then it begins to get more and more argumentative. That is to say, that is to say, look, Muhammad is right. And so because they start arguing with Muhammad. Look, when Muhammad first came out and said, I have a new religion the Meccans already had 360 religions in their town, which mm-hmm. I think is probably a high number. But anyway, 360 religions. And so having 361 was like, sure, Muhammad, right, move, you know, move yourself right in over here. We, we're good for one more. Right. <clears throat> but that was, they, they were tolerant of Muhammad's message from his God, Allah, until his God, Allah, started telling them what they were leading their life was wrong and they needed to change their life and be like Muhammad and they're like, wait a minute, you know, we were happy enough before you came along and now you're insisting. At first they just said, he told them, you'll burn in hell. But then when he told them their parents and ancestors were burning in hell, that didn't sit well with the Meccans at all because they had a great respect for their ancestors. As a matter of okay. fact, an Arab name, all those bin and Ben words in there mean son of, son of, son of. So a Muslim's name is almost like a genealogy segment. That's how much they love their ancestors. So when he started telling them their ancestors were burning in hell as well, they're like, get out of here. And so the tone becomes argumentative. So it changes from poetry to argumentation. Okay,
0: so I can understand that, uh, you know, Muhammad was kind of wearing his welcome thin in Mecca when he started telling everybody that their ancestors would go to hell. What point in his stay, his, I guess, 13-year stay in mecca was that and and then what happened next
1: well the irritation began about halfway through his 13 year period one of the things that i did in my quran's that i publish is that i do a parallel. i integrate his life into the into the quran because it's his life that yields the quran's context yeah. now you used to hear about that well all depends on the context well muhammad is the context And so we can see that not only does Muhammad get into arguments, but the Quran weighs in on that. And Allah starts taking sides as to, you know, basically saying, look, those guys don't know what they're talking about. I'm on your side. You and me, Muhammad. Okay, and the Quran is theologically erudite version of that. The
0: Quran, yeah, the Quran is kind of the ongoing running record as this is all happening, right? It's being um, recorded in memory at this time. Right.
1: But okay. The other thing is the Quran. Once you read the story of Muhammad's life integrated into the Quran, you see that uh, Allah was sort of Muhammad's wish fulfilling gem. That is, whatever he needed, Allah gave him. If if there were difficult questions asked, which is which is happening just before or towards the end, it was when Muhammad left. Okay. They, uh, they they sent off messengers to the Jews of Medina and said, "Look, we've got this man who says he's a prophet." We need to ask him difficult questions, and at that point, the Quran begins to turn on the Jews because you see they're now helping Muhammad's enemies. So all of the context makes the Quran make sense. Because and that's what happens. And the reason that I always teach Muhammad before I teach Quran is that if you try reading the Quran on its own, listen carefully now. No one can understand the Quran as it's written on its own. No one not the most brilliant scholar, you always have to bring in Muhammad to give the context of a verse. And once you understand that Muhammad gives it a context, everything goes smoothly. So the Quran goes from beautiful poetry to argumentative style because Muhammad is being argued with.
0: Okay, okay. So, I mean, you could easily say that that's because Muhammad was chosen by God to be the latest prophet and he had to be
1: protected, right? Yes, we could. And that, and that is the story of the Quran: is that Muhammad is being taken care of by Allah, right? Okay. And it's not like there's even periods of time when Allah doesn't weigh in very quickly, where we have in the Sirah, the life of Muhammad, Muhammad gets depressed.
0: He gets depressed, uh, yeah, it, because like it near, Allah's, near left the
1: end of, all, Allah's left him out here all alone.
0: Which, what, to, when is that? When did that happen?
1: Well, there's one thing when they ask, uh, they ask when they sent the messengers to Medina, the Medina messengers came back with the tough questions. They ask him the tough questions and nothing happens for a long time. And the Meccans say to Muhammad, hey, you're always quick to answer questions. What's the matter? You, uh, you, you, your God failed you. And then, mm-hmm. of course, Muhammad's depression is ended when Gabriel shows up and says, here's all the answers to the questions. Okay,
0: okay. Now, was that when when he had to answer the questions from the Jews in the other town to, to show whether or not he was a prophet, a Jewish yes. prophet?
1: But there were other arguments that were made, which was the Meccans said, look, you're some kind of holy man prophet with a direct line to God. Hey, man, do us a miracle. Come on, show us a miracle, because the, they, I think, knew the story that Jesus performed miracles, and that Moses had struck the rock and produced the water and done miracles yeah. as well. And yeah. so they're like, hey will your God let you do a miracle? And that's why we have Muhammad is called a messenger more than he's called a prophet. Because Muhammad's response was, my miracle is the Quran.
0: Okay, okay, okay. And what he meant is what he was reciting orally from Allah through Gabriel. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, because there was was probably no thought of, of it in written form at that time.
1: Well, not at the time. I mean, Muhammad was was a brilliant tactician and he was responding with what his tactical needs on the ground were.
0: Okay, okay,
1: okay. And by the way, with these arguments and everything, you can begin to see the tone of the Quran change. Like I say, the early poetry is rarely heard anymore, but I tell you what you do hear more of. The best writing in the Quran is the descriptions of hell. In the Meccan Quran, I said this one time to an Arab who was raised in uh, Jeddah, And he had become a Christian. And Uh I said, asking the question, I said, so, in English, the best writing in the Quran is the early poetry and the descriptions of hell. And he Mm -hmm. says, oh, in Arabic, the poetry is better and the descriptions of hell are better. He says, you can torture and hate better in Arabic than you can in English. (laughs) Okay, interesting. So,
0: but that started to come out a little bit more antagonistic before Muhammad left uh, Mecca, right?
1: Right, because in the end... In the end, the Meccans basically, they tried isolating him by using what he calls shunning. There's another word for that. Um, anyway, the Meccans began to push back okay. because Muhammad went from a man who was, uh, would settle arguments to a man who was starting arguments. And yeah. the, the, what happened was the Meccans began, their patience began to wear out. And they began to say, you know, we want you to leave town. They drove some of them out. They went to Ethiopia and stayed for a while. So, this was a very contentious part of his life, and the Quran reflects this contentiousness and argumentative style.
0: When you say he was settling arguments, was that back when he was a businessman or when he started? That's back to be- when he was
1: a businessman. When he was a okay. businessman, he settled arguments. Once he became the messenger of Allah, uh, he, became, he started arguments.
0: Okay. So, the Quran gradually changed, if I understand you right, just before he, he left Mecca, and then it continued to change as he started living in Medina. Is that right? Yes. Hmm. Okay. All right. So, let's look at the progression then, since we're focused on the Quran, uh, from, what, a, a year or two before he left Mecca, whenever it started changing.
1: And in the last carried- year in particular, the biggest change, he was there in Mecca for 13 years as the messenger of Allah, and in the last year was when he really got cranky with the Jews, and Allah turns on the Jews, and so that's the beginning of Jew hatred in the Quran. The last they didn't, year they didn't have Jews in Mecca, though, right? No, but the Jews aided the messengers who went to the Medinans and said, look, you're see, Medina's half Jewish, and so they said would give us some tough questions to ask the man. So, the Jews are still in Medina, but their word has come back to Mecca. And so, Allah now starts trash-talking the Jews.
0: Okay, okay. And then he he went, when he left Mecca, he went to live right in the same community where
1: those Jews lived, right? Exactly. When he got there, he became a politician, and a year later, he became a jihadist. But you know, his and by the way, the Quran material changes drastically. Once he gets, once he gets in, Mac, in Medina, the Jew hatred becomes intense because uh, they were his biggest. What happened was, you see, before he'd used the Jews to verify his messenger prophet status. But once the Jews said, you're not one of us, that's when he started attacking the Jews. And the Quran okay. becomes very vicious about them, okay, so- raising him to condemning them.
0: So was the Quran basically giving the message that the Jews used to be legitimate because they were in Muhammad's line but now they had
1: degenerated? Exactly. Okay. Okay. Now now okay. notice what we're saying here. You're you're you've now you're into the narrative of it is Muhammad's life that explains the Quran. And it does. Uh, it makes everything uh, make sense. Right, yeah, exactly. So
0: what was there was it kind of like a gradual change or were there marked stages between
1: they're pretty the, marked the the, the medina okay. quran is very different from the meccan quran
0: all right so within what a year or so of getting to medina it, it became violent or how long did yes that
1: take? well the, the condemnation of the jews starts early on because they said look you're not a prophet You know, we we know prophets and you're not one. And so the the tone of the Quran really changes.
0: Okay, yeah, that was a threat to the entire idea. Yes. Oh, yes, it
1: was, because if the Jews could prevail, his career was washed up.
0: Right, exactly. And that would reflect really badly on Allah as well,
1: if he failed.
0: Okay, so um, why don't we go ahead and, and just start tracing the progression once he got into Medina and, and how that related to the progression that was in the Quran at the same time.
1: Well, the progression is, like I say, the Jew hatred. I'm the One of the things that I've done is I've measured things and I found by, interestingly enough, that there was more Jew hatred in the uh, Quran and the Hadith than there was in Mein Kampf. And I, of course, actually compared, I read Mein Kampf and um, counted up all the Jew hatred in it which mm-hmm. was, to my knowledge, the first time that's ever done, been done. Mein Kampf is a very unusual book. Everyone has heard of it, but it's like the Koran. Do you actually know of anybody, Richard, who's read Mein Kampf?
0: I, I have to admit, you know, unfortunately, I haven't even read it, which I really should have by now, but I've never read it, so no.
1: Well, it's not a great work of literature, but, of course, it's a great historical document. But nevertheless, I figure that the Mein Kampf is the gold standard of Jew hatred.
0: Okay. That, that, well, I've
1: never been challenged on that statement.
0: That's what you first thought, right, before you checked.
1: Well, I checked, and it really – well, if you just look in popular literature, the usually the most vicious Jew-hatred material is considered to be Mein Kampf. I mean, it's just right. yeah. sort of – whether it's true or not, it's conventional wisdom. And so what I, I set that as a standard, and okay. just about 7% of Mein Kampf is devoted to Jew-hatred. And so, but over, I don't have the figures in front of me, but roughly 9% of the Quran, the Seer, and the Hadith is about Jew hatred. Mm -hmm. So, I'm just saying there's more Jew hatred in the Islamic doctrine than there is in Mein Kampf. Now, I think this is a fascinating result, and yet no one has ever seemed to pay too much attention to it. Particularly the Jews here in Nashville, Tennessee, who want to go to a love fest with the Muslims. They don't want anybody, they would never go to a Nazi meeting. That'd be horrific. But they'll go to an organization that's more Jew-hating than the Nazis.
0: You know, it seems like maybe that's partly because very few people do any research to check anything anymore. They listen to what's told to them on television.
1: Or they read it on the Internet, so it's got to be true.
0: (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. They're not too discerning about the sources. So one of the things about those two sources that were so hateful, did they have the same basics that they you know said justified them or were they coming from different no ways?
1: hitler's reasons for hating the jews was totally different from muhammad's and allah's that's one thing i can report wasn't it mostly
0: economic at that point
1: in in uh in germany. no in germany in germany uh well let's not get too far off into my okay. confidence but he was jealous of their material success
0: Okay, and that, and what was the reasoning of Muhammad?
1: Well, they denied that he was the prophet of Allah. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's the but, most heinous crime you can... Well, no, even more heinous than saying he's not is to join with him and then reject him. That's called apostasy, and that is the worst crime in the world. According, That's worse than mass murder, according to Allah. Now, by the uh, way, there's something else that changes here, and that is that... Uh, the, I've said this as an old man, is that wisdom can see what is not, knowledge can see what is. And if you're from very familiar with the Quran, one of the things you notice, if you can notice what is not there, is that the descriptions of hell go on and on and on and on. Uh, I think one time I have said there's 118, um, that number may not be correct, 118 mm-hmm. descriptions of hell. But in the Medina and Quran, there are many, many fewer descriptions of hell, and they're briefer. Now, they really become few and brief once we get to the jihad part of Islam.
0: It's kind of counterintuitive in a
1: way. Hmm?
0: It's kind of counterintuitive in a way. You would think he'd be more into that when it gets violent.
1: Well, you see, he's punishing the kafir at first with threats of hell after you die. Right. In Medina... He delivers upon his threats in this life, and so therefore there's no reason to talk about. It. You're gonna, you're gonna regret this after you die. Now, then, in Medina, you regret it today because you yeah, it's die.
0: like why wait till you die, right?
1: Let's why just wait take till it. you die. So as a result, this is one of the things that does not have. There is not much talk of hell uh, other than just in passing. I mean, in Mecca, the descriptions are just. Delicious. They're like somebody who writes horror shows for Hollywood or something. You know, Uh, you burn your skin off and then your skin regrows so that you can burn it off again. I mean, think about that.
0: That's really creative. Yeah, I mean,
1: yeah, amazing.
0: And and so that kind of thing is over and over again, mostly in the earlier Quran. Right.
1: Yes. Descriptions of hell. But like I say, once we have hell on earth, which is jihad. We no longer need to talk so so much about what hell is going to be after you die. Right, right. And the other thing is, by the way, is not only the descriptions of hell, which are uh, very clear, but the descriptions of paradise, which is what they call heaven, are also very clear as well. I mean, you drink wine, it won't give you a hangover. You have uh, Um. eternal orgasms. You have a harem that goes on forever, and your wife, by the way, is over in a someplace else she 's not with you uh, <laughs> and you have uh, food, you have boys, little boys that look like pearls, you have couches to recline on in the shade next to water. It is the kind of heaven that a desert dweller would dream of
0: okay now now, one of the questions that comes up immediately from that. They allow women into hell, right, for all kinds of things that they can do. I right. have
1: seen hell, and it is mostly filled with women. Why, Mohammed? Yeah. Because they were not, because they were not uh, subjected themselves to their husbands. They didn't appreciate their husbands right. enough.
0: Okay, now, so that was my point, that they, they, hell is wide open for women, but it, it really makes you wonder, what, what is offered for women in paradise?
1: Well, they get short shift. Uh, the, all I'm saying is, is that if you have these huri's, uh, who, by the way, one of, they, they have firm breasts, uh, shy eyes. By that, I mean, the huri's don't ever really look at you and they're perpetual virgins. Right. Uh, I mean, there has been asked this more than once. Uh, the women don't seem to get any, the, any sexual gratification in heaven. They don't get a harem of men or anything. Right? No, they do not. There's not a stud farm for the women. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, other people have noted this as well. But I mean, the description of heaven is a sensual paradise.
0: Well, and since the women are taken care of by just being given the order to obey everything, then you really don't have to attract them with anything, right? They're they're mostly motivated by threats of punishment.
1: Oh, by the way, there's something else interesting about heaven. You have all the food you can eat, but you never take a dump and you never need to sweat.
0: So it's that specific, huh?
1: No, yeah, yeah. It's very graphic.
0: Okay, interesting.
1: I didn't know that. I found it fascinating. Oh. In Christianity heaven is sort of left in some sort of nebulous spiritual state of grace and awe, and but you don't. It, and I, I was just struck by the Playboy magazine version of paradise that's in the Quran.
0: Right much I'm not more the first one has
1: been struck by this by the way These, there's been many people who've noted this
0: there there are some versions of christianity that talk about streets paved with gold and things like that but compared <sighs> to what you're talking about that's not much
1: as far I as I remember this is this is a small sidebar joke some well oh, I know we're getting ready to touch on something here in our civilization, there are many jokes about St. Peter playing golf with Jesus and Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods. There are all kinds of little jokes about God and heaven, and mm-hmm. and we've all heard them. The absence of humor in Islam about all this I find striking with itself. That is, in all the years, uh, 1,400 years, there's never been a single Muhammad joke told.
0: Uh, not Not with permission, that's for sure. Not and- with what? Not with permission.
1: From Not his with own. permission. So yeah. as a result, so. but anyway, the, the point I was going to make is I remember a story about some guy who was so good that he got a wish to take something of heaven uh, from to, to heaven from earth. And so he brings a brick of gold and they look at it in heaven and go, what are you, paving stones?
0: Right, right. Small, yeah. Very small yeah, joke. that's probably one of the most amazing jokes, you know, in that whole genre. But they... They are also not only um, with that attitude toward humor, but things like art and music and stuff like that
1: are also addressed in the Quran, aren't they? Not in the Quran, but in the Hadith. In the Hadith, okay, I'm sorry. There's no, uh, remember we said the story about how Muhammad wasn't visited by the angel? Well, in Medina, there was a visitation gap as well. And so it turns out that Aisha had hung up a picture of an animal or something in the house, and so, mm-hmm. and so anyway, when the angel came back, it says we do not we do not go into houses that have pictures or dogs in them, which I thought was sort of interesting that a angels just I mean I don't have a lot of contact with angels let me but I've imagined that angels probably wouldn't care a lot about earthly whatever it was they're here on heavenly business not to which not to see how you're dressed and what the decorations on the wall are.
0: Except this one really cared a lot about
1: it, right? Uh, Gabriel did. said, I don't go into houses that have animals or dog pictures of animals or dogs in it. Okay. So anyway, so that was Muhammad's reason for not hearing from Gabriel.
0: So then Muhammad corrected that situation.
1: Corrected that. There's even a thing later when Aisha made him a pillow that had uh, some pictures of animals on it, and he became angry with that, that. Okay. No, 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 no. We don't want that here. Angels will never come in the house.
0: Well, and there wasn't a book that she should have memorized or referred to. It was only stuff that he had said. So right. she just didn't remember, I
1: guess. Now, let's give Aisha let's say, at least notice. Yes. She's a great deal made up because she was married at nine and consummated. I say married at six and consummated at nine. Yes. She, however, was seen to be very strongly attracted to Muhammad because after he died, she became the, one of the chief sources of hadith, stories about Muhammad. uh, But she also became the source of the uh, division between Shia and Sunni. So she's a very interesting person. If I were a Muslim, I would think I would write a play about uh, Aisha, except, of course, have you seen any great Muslim movies lately? Any great Muslim symphonies? Any great Muslim art? No, you haven't, because they don't do that
0: okay 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 so when you say that aisha was was an important figure in the division between sunni and shia what happened but she with helped
1: that? to start a civil war
0: how what happened
1: uh i don't remember all of this but she had a contentious relationship with ali one of the things that occurs in the medina and quran is we get pictures of muhammad's sex life and we get more, let's see, one of them is with his daughter-in-law, and the other one is his sex life. He took Aisha with him on one of his jihad raids, and through a process which is suspicious to me, she got left behind and and came back to Medina on the camel of one of Muhammad's soldiers who was late getting back into line. Mm -hmm. So, there was a lot of gossip about this, and, uh, some were like, ooh, 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 she spent the night out with somebody who, uh, so as we would say in our English of today, tongues begin to wag, right. and it was the great lie was told. And so Muhammad had this problem of, well, the gossip is she may have slept with my warrior, and so Allah steps in and solves the problem and says, no, 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 she didn't do that, and that those who gossip need to be uh, punished, and I think they were g- given beatings. Yeah, okay, okay. Then there's another part of his love life in which he had a daughter-in-law that he uh took a liking to. Now the daughter-in-law was married to his son and his adopted son. And so by Arab law she was his she was related married to his stepson so therefore she was his daughter-in-law. That's how, I think I've said it right. Okay. So anyway, Muhammad got the release on this by saying, there is a message that came to him, which was that his adopted son was not his son at all. There was no such thing as adoption. And so therefore, he was just another guy who happened to live in Muhammad's house. Okay. So therefore, she wasn't his daughter-in-law, and she could be married. So the former adopted son divorced her, and Muhammad married her. Okay. So we have Muhammad's sex life in the Quran written in Medina as well.
0: So, the the Quran existed during Muhammad's life in the form of ongoing um, verbal accounts that Muhammad was giving to all of his followers, right?
1: Right. And, and the Arabs of his day were very used to memorizing, and so these were memorized. And I'm okay. told by those who speak Arabic that, in particular, the Meccan Quran is very poetic and easy to recite. And you'll see Muslims, as they recite it, doing a rocking motion, which goes along with the cadence of of the poetry
0: okay okay that makes sense but then did the hadith only exist after he died
1: well of course even during his life people would say muhammad did it this way uh you know muhammad did it that way uh should you eat chicken well i saw muhammad eating chicken this is while he's alive so therefore eating chicken is okay
0: okay Okay, so did but it didn't become a formal collection. Or I, I'm just. It sounds like from what you're saying that the Quran was more complete, more solid in some way than the Hadith during his life.
1: Yes, this is true, and there, to some degree, there's after he died. Since the Quran has ninety-one verses which say that he's the perfect Muslim be the perfect Muslim, you need to be like Muhammad, and so therefore we need to know what Muhammad, how he ate, how he went to the bathroom, how he had sex, right? you know, what, how he, what, whatever. How, we even know how he laid on his back, which foot was atop the other when he crossed his legs slightly. And, so and they this, tried to imitate be, him in everything.
0: This was be, for people that needed to know about all these things so that they could imitate them. This was being talked about as soon as he died. Through yes, a, and before father. he died. Okay.
1: Okay. And he would also answer, he would also resolve questions about people would remember a verse one way and people would remember a verse another way. And so they would come to him to resolve the argument over which verse is correct. Now, listen to what I just told you. If during his own lifetime, there was discussion about, well, is the verse this or is the verse that? Imagine what it was like after he died.
0: Yeah, 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 and okay. So, so once he died, how long was it before things were written down?
1: About fifteen years.
0: Fifteen. Okay, okay. And and the the date approximately of his death was what?
1: Six twenty six thirty
0: two. Six
1: thirty two. So say okay, so 630,
0: 640, About 647. Yeah, something like that. Okay, and then at that time, is that when it started getting? Written down in scattered form on,
1: you know. Well, shoulder, it was written like down in band- scattered form during his own life. Oh, what okay. Make some notes. Those who could write. Now, there okay. was not a lot of writing that went on in Muhammad's world. Remember, people of the book was an extraordinary thing, and the Quran was the first book in Arabic.
0: Yes. Okay, but there were a few because they were the ones that wrote it down from what right. was Right, so there,
1: there were some, yes. Okay.
0: And then those were collected into a, a uh, regular, you know, pre-book form. How much later?
1: Well, the, the book itself was put together in 15 years after he died.
0: That was Uthman who did that? Say again? Was that Uthman who had that done? Yes. Mm-hmm. The, the s- second caliph.
1: Third caliph.
0: Third. Okay. Third caliph. So they had, they had a really quick succession of caliphs after Muhammad died.
1: Well, what happened? And they all died a violent death, except for Abu Bakr, who died of old age. But some say he was poisoned. Uthman was killed by Muslims. Uh, Umar was killed by a slave. And I forget now how Ali died. But no, there there was violent death after he died. But look, live by the sword, die by the sword. The man rose to power with the sword, and so therefore that those who followed after him should also f- die of the sword and use the sword is hardly of anything to uh, concern yourself about. Now, one of the things that happened was that after Muhammad died and Abu Bakr became caliph, there were a whole lot of Arabians who said, you know, we tried the Muslim thing and we liked it. Muhammad was a great guy, but, you know, he's dead now, so we have no allegiance to him. We're out of here. Thank you. Goodbye. And Abu Bakr said, nope, that won't happen that way. And so the first wars that Islam fought were the apostasy wars, the Rita wars.
0: So was that against organized groups or individuals or both?
1: Uh, organization here was on a tribal basis.
0: Okay, all right. So there was a whole tribe that would say, we're not Muslim anymore, and right. they, would be, they would be attacked.
1: Yes. And by the way, in the end, everybody uh, went enough people died the rest of them says you know we've been thinking over the islam thing and we kind of like it
0: right exactly so okay interesting and it, it, it's also um fascinating the motivation that was put together before muhammad's death for people to join in the attacking armies because oh yes <laughs> there was a big upside i mean whether you lived or died you did great if you're willing to well, join. he attack. had the
1: he had the perfect machinery for producing, theological machinery for producing uh, warriors. If you lived, you got to keep 80% of what you could capture. Yeah. 20% went to Muhammad. And by the way, this was considered a generous deal because previous war chieftains had taken 25%, but Muhammad only took a fifth.
0: Okay, wow. So there
1: are hadith about men who became wealthy. As a matter of fact, there's also complaints in the Quran about people once they got enough money that they were living well, that they didn't want to practice jihad anymore. They begin to make excuses and not go out on jihad. So yeah. in the Medinan Quran, we have events in which there are entire chapters written about battles. The Battle of Badr, the Battle of the Trench, the Battle of uh, Uhud. So uh, we get the Quran itself involved in the reporting of war.
0: Okay, so so if 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 the Quran, if part of the Medina Quran, was reporting war, were these mostly wars of aggression or defense?
1: Ah, well, now what they say is they were all wars of defense. That's Modern what. Modern Muslims yeah. are a little bit don't want to push the jihad thing too much. It's something. It's the family secret they don't want to talk about. So, at first, in the jihad stories, by the way, the angels helped. Muhammad to kill people. In this story, there was a troop of angels. Then in other stories, mistakes were made because they didn't follow Muhammad. The Battle of Uhud, they uh, they didn't, Muhammad told the archers where to stand and says, don't leave there till the battle's completely over. But when they saw the Muslim Meccans were in retreat, the archers said, ooh, they left their stuff behind. And so remember, war jihad was a way to get rich. So they went to grab the goodies and the uh, they, uh, they were out of their position, and so in the end, the Meccans won. And so mm-hmm. the big conclusion here is, is, there's two conclusions that the Quran preaches. One is, follow your messenger, follow your prophet, yeah. do exactly yeah. what he says, because the reason you lost was you didn't do what he said. Now, you're bad kids, you're bad boys, but Allah's most forgiving, often forgiving, and so we'll let you try one more time. But you right. need to understand that you have to follow Muhammad or you will lose but you also need to keep your morale bucked up even if you do lose. So the Quran is a very practical strategic manual of jihad. It's okay. well written on the point. Does
0: it describe these wars as aggressive or defensive?
1: Ah, oh, you're back to the question, which I forgot to answer. It, it just describes them as they are. Now, it's, at first, Muhammad was allowed, they said, to fight defensive wars. Now, let me describe to you the defensive wars that he fought. He sent men out of Mecca, I'm out of Medina to attack the Meccan caravans. Uh-huh. Now, Richard, if I bring some people over to my house and give them money or control them in some way, a contract for them to do killing, then if I send them out of the house, how can we call that killing defensive? Uh, you mean, you well, it,
0: you're saying the caravan had not done anything aggressive. They it, were was just like, being, it was like
1: hijacking an 18-wheeler. I mean, the right. caravans had done nothing. The trading caravans were trading business. Now, they carried some arms because there was always threat of losing your goods. Yeah. But no, they, uh, Muhammad repeatedly attacked them, but it was called defensive. The reason it was called defensive was the Meccans committed the first offense by denying that Muhammad was the messenger of Allah. Okay, okay. So that is an offensive act within itself. So it could be said that all Islam, all jihad is defensive in nature.
0: Yes, because the denial was the first thing
1: that justified it. You, you started the fight by saying that Muhammad wasn't the prophet of Allah. So yeah. we're now on the defensive because you have now offended Allah, you have offended us, you've offended the Sunnah, you've offended Islam.
0: So were there early campaigns against caravans?
1: Yes. As a matter of fact, all of the campaigns in the beginning were... Muhammad always fought, if possible, with an economic advantage in mind because he needed the money... One of the things that is recorded is that the Meccans were—I mean, the Me- Muslims were quite poor in Medina. So okay. this was a way of earning money, right. and it is recorded that after the first big capture, that the Muslims had their cash flow problems solved.
0: And that must have been a big caravan,
1: basically, right? Yes, it was a large caravan. Okay, and, then- and now they describe the attacking the caravan as um, defensive. They, they, you see, the killing the Jews was defensive as well, because they had committed the first offense by saying yes. that Muhammad was not the prophet of Allah. Okay, okay. So, right. when, so- when when Muslims say, oh, it was all defensive, uh, let's just say that they're being generous. If I did what Muhammad did, I would not be able to plead in a court of law that I was just defending myself.
0: There's a considerable amount of poetic license involved in that description. Yes. Okay, so how long did it go on with the caravans as the targets, and and when did it change, into what?
1: Oh, let's see. I don't, I'm having to think here. When did he finally stop attacking caravans? Hmm, I'm not really sure, but we finally get to start, for instance, other things that he did attack were the Jews inside of and Medina. He had three, there were three tribes of them, and he attacked them one at a time. Okay. By the way, there's a lesson here in how the Jews were defeated. In no case did the Jews ally themselves with each other and see that we need to fight this together. Instead, okay. they let themselves be taken down one at a time.
0: They didn't take it very seriously, in other words.
1: Well, they had fought in wars before and they were armor makers, but they did not. They, the biggest mistake you can make with Muhammad, the biggest mistake you can make with Islam is to underestimate it or yeah. to underestimate him. Right. And they underestimated him.
0: So by the time he attacked the Jews, he had a pretty good-sized army
1: behind him, right? Yes. Had skilled warriors. Skilled now, warriors. he even the Jews further because after uh, he had cleaned up the Jews in Medina, Medina, to us to use a uh, German word, was Judenrein, cleansed of Jews. Uh-huh. But that didn't solve the problem because there were wealthy Jews in Khybar, which was, I think, roughly 100 miles away from Medina. And uh, he attacked them. Now this would was, be that th- was
0: that the third of the three targets no, of Jews?
1: No, the three tribes are already down. He's cleaned up. the the He's oh, now cleansed of Jews. Okay. And so then taxed the Jews of Kaibar. And it was there that they created the Dimi, which is an important event. That is, the Jews got to live because they had big farms. Well, it turns out that the Muhammad's men didn't know how to do farming. And so if you killed all the Jews, you'd kill all the cash flow. So what happened was, is that all the property went to Muhammad, and the Jews had to pay a 50% tax a year. And then after Muhammad died, Umar drove them out of Arabia. So they were the okay, first well, enemies.
0: But you said the property went to Muhammad, but that means the farms, right? That they were farming? Yes, yes. But they, what, did they become like tenant farmers or something like exactly. that?
1: Exactly, they were tenant farmers on their own land.
0: Okay, and they got to keep half of what they produced,
1: basically. And half of what they produced, exactly. Perfect. And now Islam tells the story this way, that this was a great blessing because the, the tolerance of Islam was they got to keep their uh, religion. They had to live under the Sharia and give half their money away, but they got to keep their religion. And this oh. is the famous tolerance of Islam and its support for its brother religions who are the Jews and the Christian.
0: Right, and they got to stay alive also well there was that that's an additional bonus okay so i'm trying to trace as the quran goes along explaining the different wars and battles and um you know process of muhammad's life was the hadith developing at the same time and people were talking about exactly how he did everything
1: i do know that he gave instructions a man says muhammad i can't remember all the all the hadith so this means they were collecting them and muhammad gave okay. him uh, a magical thing which made after that he never forgot any hadith so the stories of the hadith say that they were memorizing him while muhammad was alive okay. but muhammad was the entire world for the muslims he was everything as a matter of fact one of the things that happens as you study the progression of the language of the Quran is, is at first, Muhammad is definitely just the messenger and Allah is God. But towards the end of the Quran, Muhammad and God speak with one voice. He who obeys Muhammad has, obeys, has obeyed me. Well, that's a pretty heavy investiture. So we see the language of the messenger change from being that of the messenger of God to basically... God in human
0: form, basically
1: region on Earth. Okay,
0: and you're saying that was near the end of the time, right? Yes. All right. And back to what you were saying uh, about getting rid of the local Jews, which there were three tribes of them, right? And each mm-hmm. one was each one treated or, or approached differently, or all the same?
1: Yes. The first two lived and got to leave with uh, some goods of their own, but most of their wealth was left behind.
0: So there wasn't an actual battle in those two cases, right?
1: Well, he attacked them and they, they surrendered. I see, okay. And so uh, the, uh, the third and last tribe is the most famous because what happened was is they finally they were in their fortress but they realized that they couldn't get out and so they made a deal that they would submit themselves to the judgment of who they thought was an ally. But the ally turned out to be their enemy because his judgment was is that the children, those without pubic hair, would be adopted as Muslims into Muslim families. The hmm. women would be enslaved and sold and all the male Jews would be killed. Okay. And uh, so there were roughly 800, the number varies, but roughly 800 male Jews uh, lost their heads in the hmm. marketplace of Medina. There's a, a neat little detail from one of the Hadith, which was the... Uh, all the male Jews were lined up and they had to lift their robes and show their private parts. And if they had pubic hair, they were killed. If they didn't have pubic hair, they lived. Right, right. That's an actual Hadith. Okay.
0: And then they were all killed on one day if they were adults?
1: It supposedly took till late at night. All right, all right. And and Aisha sat there beside Muhammad while it was all done.
0: Now, I've also been told by a teacher of Islam, that that killing of 800 of them was totally defensive, and it was because they had uh, done some kind of treachery to Muhammad specifically. Do you know anything about that?
1: It's said, this was, I think, after the Battle of the Ditch, and it is said that they uh, tried to help the enemy, but it's not clear exactly how that happened. Okay. Okay. And besides that, and I want you to imagine something. You're running a religion, and yet you're telling me that it was okay to kill 800 male Jews simply because they betrayed you in battle. Did they kill anyone? No. The Muslims won the battle, and yet, to I mean, it's just an odd thing to do if you're thinking about it in terms of religion. Now, as a political movement, and that's, this is one of the reasons that I coined the term political Islam,
0: Yeah,
1: is a political movement, it makes total sense. But as a religious idea... It falls short, I think, of what I think of as divine justice.
0: Yeah, it's a little different interpretation. And um, the other thing I I think we haven't talked about at all is that in the Quran, which is our subject, the difference between how you treat uh, Kafirs and how you treat fellow
1: Muslims. Oh, yes. Well, if you were a Muslim, you were Muhammad's best friend. If you were a Kafir, you were his worst enemy. Now, there is something remarkable here. You could be his worst enemy and actually have harmed him. But if you converted, all your sins were forgiven. You were now totally a new guy.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: And there's even the story of one man who uh, came came to Muhammad. They were going to fight a battle and he wanted to take part in the uh, treasures that can be obtained through killing people. And he said, should I... Convert before I fight, and Muhammad said yes. So he gave the shahada: There is no god but Allah. Muhammad is his prophet. Went and died in combat, and Muhammad said, "Well, he goes straight to heaven. A very so little time, the, but a great reward." This could forth. be
0: the basis of, of the tremendous, unlimited forgiveness of Allah, right? Because uh, these yes. guys that convert were terrible be- right before that.
1: Well, that's true. I never thought about that. And this, by the way, now, one of the things that is clearly laid out in the Quran, speaking of jihad and warriors, is, is the swift trip to paradise if you die in combat. And this, and one of the things that happens to a jihadist is all of his sins are forgiven. So, therefore, if in 9-11, when the 9-11 jihadist spent their nights drinking in, in strip bars, those were all sins, but they knew that tomorrow they would die in jihad And that all their sins would be forgiven. I I find that interesting. So it's
0: just logical to do as many sins as you've been wanting to do right before you die.
1: I mean, you're going to get, it's like you've got an unlimited charge card. You you can buy whatever you want and it's going to be paid for by Allah.
0: Okay, total forgiveness of everything.
1: Yep. Okay. It It also says that they will not suffer the punishment of the grave and they go directly to heaven. Now this avoids two problems of dying as a Muslim. The first problem is the punishment of the grave, which was an idea they adopted from some Jews, and the other is the uncertainty of Judgment Day, because you see no man is perfect, and although Allah is most forgiving, you really don't know how your 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 good deeds and your bad deeds will outweigh each other. So Judgment mm-hmm. Day is a is a risky business. And besides that. Allah says, I have made both men and jinn to burn in hell. That is, Allah creates some human beings for the sole purpose of torturing them for eternity in hell. Right. Which I thought was a very, if you stop and think about, that is, since this is Allah's book, that it gives a very strange picture of Allah. Here's somebody who would create people just to burn them in hell.
0: Yeah, that is an interesting, you can probably do several shows on that issue alone. But, but basically, you're saying that if, if Muslims don't die, at least this is what Muhammad in the Quran said, if they don't die in jihad, and they just die you know, in a relatively mundane way, then, and, and we only have a, a minute or two for this, but w- what basically is the punishment of the grave that they all
1: have to go through? It seems to be some sort of physical suffering, and you have to do it until Judgment Day. But okay. the punishment of the grave is left to me a bit vague.
0: Is Judgment Day, you have to wait until everybody's judged, yep. or does it happen soon for some people? Every,
1: every, everyone, is, everyone is gathered together in their physical form on Judgment Day.
0: So it's like after the end of the world, basically. Yes. Okay, okay, interesting. And then, okay, all right. So, and it's left vague whether you'd make it through Judgment.
1: Well, it's just that it's a dicey piece of business. Now, of course, Muslims like to repeat, uh, Allah is most generous, he's the most compassionate. So, but I mean, it's left uncertain. Muhammad said himself that he did not know whether he'd go to heaven or hell. But the popular myth about Muhammad is, is that he was poisoned by a Jew uh, with a shoulder of meat and that, so therefore the poison effect never left him. And so therefore, he died as a jihadist, which meant he did go directly to heaven.
0: I see. Okay. Good. Um, all right, so I, I would say if if people want to know more and check for themselves and, and do the study and learn about the Quran in more detail, um, you've actually given a tool for people to do that, referencing the original verses. Right? You want to tell people what that is? Well,
1: I publish. I have. I offer three Qurans that I sell. Then the really it's only one Quran. I call it a simple Quran because the Quran calls itself a simple Quran. And what I do is I integrate Muhammad's life and I weave it into the Quran verses. And I do so the Quran verses are arranged in the right time order and they're also grouped together. So you get all the descriptions of hell. You can read them all in sort of one section or. And uh, so that's one thing I do. But then my sister said, Bill says the Quran is so endlessly repetitive. Why don't you do an abridged version? So I did an abridged version as well. And then I have what I call a two-hour Quran, because I made the discovery that most people are so afraid of learning Islam because they figure they can't do it, that if you hand them a real small book, they'll figure, well, I could read that. So I've taken the Quran and made it a very small book just to try to get people to read it who normally wouldn't read the Quran at all.
0: Okay, and that's all available on politicalislam.com, right?
1: Politicalislam.com. I also have now a new learning program, which is a computer-based learning, and you can hear my books in audio fashion, or you can read them as PDFs, and that's, uh, if you go to my website, it's the learning platform.
0: Okay, yeah, and I want to personally say I've read, I think, almost all your books, and they're great, because it's obviously not just an outside opinion, it all references the original source. Yes, It you don't believe what I
1: say? Setup. It has an index number. Go look it up in the original source.
0: Yeah, and check if it's accurate. I think that's great. So, okay, well, we'll wrap it up for now, and then we'll get into uh, some really amazing related current events on our next episode. So, Richard,
1: it's always um, good talking to you. I enjoy our talks. Thank you. Me too. Um, Bye-bye.
0: Okay, talk to you next time.